This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jane Lee from the University of Arizona. Our guest today is Dr. Stevie Swan, Associate Professor of Media Performance and Asian Studies at Hosei University in Japan. His new book, Anime's Identity, Performativity and Form Beyond Japan, um, just came out through the University of Minnesota Press. This book examines Japanese anime in both its domestic and global context and uh, uses a lot of uh, theoretical lenses to analyze anime in a very global um, context. So welcome, Dr. Swan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, nice to be here. Very happy to talk about my book. <laughs> Thank you. It's a very interesting book. But first of all, can you tell us about um, your work and perhaps a bit your, about yourself? Uh, yes. Uh, so um, as was stated before, my name is Stevie Swan. I'm an associate professor at uh, Jose University's Faculty of Global and Interdisciplinary Studies, or GIS. And uh, the majority of my interest is really in formal analysis or looking at form and exploring how that can be uh, active and operative in the world in different ways. And specifically, I draw on uh, theories and concepts from performance studies and media studies and topics from Asian studies to approach uh, anime in particular, but perhaps media more broadly, and how they are showing us different tensions of globalization in the contemporary moment. Fascinating. So are you a big anime lover then? Uh, yes, I, I do watch quite a lot of anime. Um, I'm not sure if the the viewers can or listeners, I suppose, can can hear this, but there's a Eva poster on my wall. So I, I, I do watch and enjoy anime quite a bit. Um, might I ask, what are some of your favorite ones? 
Uh, that's a really difficult question, to be honest <laughs> with you. Uh, I, 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 I hesitate to give a definitive answers because uh, what is your favorite kind of tends to change over time. But I can say what are the anime that I tend to return to and Evangelion, the original series, is one of them. Um, I also really enjoy uh, uh, the Cowboy Bebop anime from the late 90s, as well as uh, somewhat lesser known OVA or prequel to the Rurouni Kenshin series. And it's uh, called Tsuyokuhen uh, in Japanese. I think it's Trust and Betrayal in English. And those three are tend to be things that I keep returning to. But I think also that favorites list will kind of date me to that particular era. So um, there are other ones, of course, that I've uh, enjoyed over the recent years. But I guess because those were things so far in the past, I can continually return to them and see them as uh, anime that I continue to draw, draw joy from. Indeed. Now, what, um, what brought you to work on this project? How did it start? Um, so, uh, as I was saying a little bit before, I, uh, am very interested in form and formal analysis and what that does. Uh, usually it's derided, especially the last 20 or 30 years or so. Uh, it's often seen as somehow esoteric at the expense of engaging with social issues. But, uh, I think that it's actually really fundamental to thinking about these broader issues and, uh, to quote from one of the people I draw from in this particular work, Caroline Levine, uh, she is pretty assertive in saying that there is no politics without form. So uh, when you look at the forms of the works of it, it, that's at work in anime, uh, it also makes you think not just how those forms operate, but who makes those forms, where are they made, etc. And as I was researching this, I came to see that there is a lot more transnational uh participants in anime production than was usually discussed. So, um, for instance, the idea that anime wasn't only made in Japan is something that's been known for a number of years and talked about, but uh, it's usually addressed uh, very briefly as saying, well, like anime is not always made in Japan, so it calls into question the quote-unquote Japanese-ness of anime. And so this type of question gets raised critically, but it ultimately is left as a kind of rhetorical question and never really gets answered. So I started to notice, well, oddly, in this raising of the question of critiquing of the national and this idea of anime, it somehow keeps the national inside of it. <laughs> so I wanted to think, like, is there another way that we can think about what it means to be operating across borders, to be transnational, what type of patterns are emerging from this type of production. And I started to get really, <laughs> truthfully, kind of frustrated with the fact that there weren't really frameworks or, or vocabulary to talk about the different ways something could be transnational. So I wanted to address that particular question. And then I started to get into even thornier questions that this opened up, which is, well, if something that's supposed to be a cultural media product from one particular place is actually partially or maybe even mainly produced somewhere else, w w what does that mean? <laughs> like, What is that? And how do we address something like that? So, for instance, um, this 
then spirals into further questions. Like if anime is supposed to be part of the quote unquote Japanese creative industries, but its production is transnational, then how do we consider this type of creativity? So things like creativity being distinction, difference, departure from trend, valorizing newness and novelty, that is not really always apparent in anime. There's a lot of repetition. And I started to see that this repetition is really crucial for anime, for maintaining its form, and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. There are these conventions or cliches or whatever you want to call them that are repeated in anime so much that it makes it really distinct. And oddly, this is linking people together. It's bringing them together in these communities across the world who are not just consuming anime, but sometimes in some cases actually producing anime through repeating these conventions or cliches. So this means that there's some kind of alternative transnationality that is coming to view, an alternative view of space that is very different than the classically defined borders of internationalism. And so that led me into further questions about saying, well, if there's this new organization of space, then what type of relationship do we have to that space and what type of self comes from that we tend to relate ourselves to cultural things in connection to the national but if things are transnational then how do we conceptualize that aspect so suddenly i started to see that issues of form creativity the self nation transnationality all these things were intertwined with anime and I wanted to unpack them from different layers and show their you know, various intersections. That's great. This is absolutely a fascinating book. And um, personally, I watch a lot of anime uh, for myself and as I would like to say for my students. And I really think this book, um, the, the, the approaches you took in this book um, opens a whole new world for students who want to explore um, anime in this direction. But I want to begin with a question about the, I guess, the, the, the context of anime being this Japanese representation. Because now when we talk about anime, most people would immediately, as you said, associate it with Japan. So what was the process of um, anime becoming a representation of Japanese culture? And um, you mentioned uh, about this a little bit, but what might be some of the problems with this association with, um, of anime and Japan? Well, well, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I uh, appreciate the, the kind words uh, about the book. And uh, the issue of how anime connects to Japan is uh, a bit of a, a, a complicated one, because uh, I think a lot of this connects to, well, what, what do people in different places and different times consider what the word anime or anime points to? So I think a lot of this is difficult because in Japanese, anime is traditionally seen as a shortening of animation, which is the word for animation. And it implies commercial or popular animation of all different kinds. So from Disney to Dragon Ball, this all would technically fall under anime. Outside of Japan, though, the word has a bit of a much more narrow meaning. Uh, it's not just a word for Japanese animation, but a particular style of what people presume is Japanese animation. And this is really associated with, especially after the late 90s, a, a, a specific grouping or, 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 or time slot of pro, or 
time slot when certain types of productions were shown, which was late night TV animation shown in Japan. So this is what really starts to gain wider popularity outside of Japan. And once this starts to get more openly recognized in multiple different places uh, around the world, it starts to gain this recognition inside of Japan that this should be something that could be promoted as a representative of Japanese culture and perhaps even stimulate uh, economic, uh, um, I guess, growth within Japan. And this really culminates in uh, the early 2000s with the Cool Japan Nation branding campaign. So what we have here is this kind of divergence between two different associations of the word anime inside and outside of Japan. And if we are to say something like, well, okay, let's just settle on anime being Japanese popular animation. Well, if that's the case, then the anime we should all be studying is an anime called Sazai-san which is every week in the animation rankings, the number one anime in Japan. I, it's, it's massively popular inside of Japan. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say that, you know, you could probably go up to like almost any random person on the street and be like, hey, do you know Sazai-san? And they'll be like, yes, I do. Maybe they're not fans of it. Maybe they're not watching it, but they probably know of Sazai-san. So that's the one that is really this kind of Japanese popular animation definition. But nobody's going to Akihabara to buy Sazai-san goods. Nobody's cosplaying as 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 Sazai-san outside of Japan. In fact, it's 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 rarely really even known outside of Japan. They're interested in things like Bochi the Rock or Do It Yourself, which are kind of the recent, slightly trending works of this broadly late night TV anime genre. And these are relatively minor by national standards. Uh, These are late night TV anime that you could probably pull a random person off the street and they'd be like, what? And maybe they never have heard anything uh, maybe not even heard of the name itself. So really, when you have nation branding campaigns like Cool Japan, they have to reconcile these two different definitions of it. So late night TV, which is externally popular and internally has this subcultural following. And this through these types of nation branding campaigns are slowly over time raising this notion, this kind of subcultural understanding of TV late night anime into a to the like national level. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that anime, the word itself in Japanese, has changed towards this global definition. But there is a type of internal, external negotiation going on that is really spurred, spurring domestic change by external you know, appreciation or, or popularity. And so... You know, nearly 20 years of this, and I have a job at one of the oldest universities teaching about uh, anime. And I, I'm I'm kind of saying this as, 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 as in jest, but the institutionalization of anime studies is part of this equation because anime is now seen as something that is officially worthy of study as, quote unquote, Japanese culture. That's amazing. And I remember... Um... Growing up, or just uh, as I started to to watch anime when I was in, I think, middle school, or when I learned Japanese by watching anime, there was a lot of misconceptions about this this action of watching anime. Like um, there was there was this sort of almost negative um, 
um, view about watching an anime that it's, um, you know, there are words like otaku being associated with a nerd. Um, well, what's the other one? Geek. Um, all kinds of not super positive um, impression being associated with watching anime. But as you've pointed out, it's anime studies is on the rise and there are institutions setting up programs to study anime. So um, can you tell us about what kind of um, misconceptions there were and about watching anime and how those have changed? Um, yeah, I think that just like even in my own personal experience with, you know, being going back and forth uh, from Japan for a long number of years and, um, uh, you know, now 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 living here that my interest in anime went from being like, what, why are you, why would you be interested in something like that to, oh, yeah, I, I hear that's, you know, popular outside of Japan to, oh, oh yeah, of course, it's, it's Japanese culture. And, you know, these things have shifted over time. And I, I, I think for me, the one area that I, at least I try to engage with in the book is that, you know, anime is often, uh, I guess, taken for granted as something that automatically is representing Japan. And I guess maybe a better way to say that is that you can read Japan directly through anime, like there's nothing. <laughs> it's just Japan <laughs> through anime. Um, and I'm not saying that you can't kind of glean something about what we might say is like Japanese culture or society uh, from anime. You can outline a history of anime in Japan, for instance, or connect certain works to specific historical social movements and ideas. I'm not saying that that's, that's not possible. Um, but I think the issue lies in where the, the finality of like who gets the last word on anime. And I think often in sometimes the popular, but even sometimes academic discourses as well, you know, the, the last word is whatever the supposed Japanese fandom thinks of, of, of anime, that that's like the true way to really read anime. And, uh, you know, with something that's quite as global as, as anime, that's, that's, that's quite a bit of power <laughs> that, you know, whoever, uh, whoever, whatever shape that wants to take and fits that profile gets the final word on something. So um, I think there's, at least for me, what I try to bring into the discussion here is that there's this kind of thing in between. There's this media form that makes a direct reading of anime as a reflection of Japanese culture directly kind of difficult. So for instance, people outside of Japan may have all these stereotypes about anime from, sorry, about Japan from what they see in anime. But for instance, even just on a very simple level, like nobody, nobody in Japan sounds like anime characters talk. Like you could have the TV on in the other room and without even knowing what's on TV, you can instantly hear like, oh, that's, that's anime like they're not watching normal tv this is anime it's a very stylized way of speaking both in terms of the 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 way it sounds but also sometimes the diction the things that people say so you know that's not the only area like the characters the way that they act the facial expressions all these things are very distinct and specific to the way that anime tends to repeat these conventions so anime as this media form and, you know, as the medium of animation doesn't have the same type of indexical relationship to reality that other media, perhaps we might think of like cinema or even photography uh, may have. 
So I think there's these tensions there that are apparent where, you know, is what's being presented an emphasis on maintaining the media form or innovating in within the confines of that media form? Or is it addressing something historical or even locally specific? And then that gets even further complicated by, well, in this global age, like how do we even think about locale or culture in this hyper-connected world that we live in? And uh, at least my... I guess assertion is that, well, you really have to address media form with either way that you're going with this to address these uh, issues. We will come back to uh, these, some of these points later, but um, I want to ask about this um, concept of enemy uh, anime-esque that you employed throughout the book. Um, well, your, your book uses uh, approaches the question of anime through uh, quite a few uh, theoretical frameworks, and I feel like if I understood this correctly, uh, anime-esque is the biggest and the most foundational one of them all. So can you tell us what it, what, what it means and um, how you chose this as a lens to analyze the uh, anime works here? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, so for me, anime has a lot of these repeated patterns or conventions that I was just referring to before. Things like, let's say, you know, arched eyes for smiling or rounded white eyes when they're shocked. Or, uh, you know, if you're running late, you have a piece of toast in your mouth while you're running somewhere. Um, you know, these are things that like actual people don't do. <laughs> and but they've become uh, kind of synonymous with the notion of what we expect from anime. And I would say that these are part of its media form. So uh, in order to better explore this, I adapted the notion of manga S from Jacqueline Byrne. Uh, and in a like very simply, the idea of the manga esque is things that we would commonly expect to associate with manga. And of course, there's going to be things you associate with manga that you can associate with anime as well. But there's also differences based off of the fact that they're different media. So um, basically, these the anime-esque are the patterns that we regularly associate with anime uh, that are repeated across genres, across studios, across animators. Uh, things like, for instance, the big eyes with bulbous lights that are kind of vibrating when people are, or, or you know, glimmering when people are showing overflowing emotion. Things like that. So the thing is about the anime-esque is that it depends on the person, where they are, the time period. What you associate with the anime-esque will differ over time. You know, even things very simply like genres come in and out of, you know, trend, for instance. Uh, but also, if you think about things globally, different genres and different types of anime go to get, you know, go through popularities in different parts of the world in different times and you know even animators who make anime are going to have different opinions on what they feel as anime-esque or not so the anime-esque can kind of encompass all these different perspectives and shifts but it also works with a sense of the repetition of these elements that are common across the various works of anime so what that means is if there's these things that we tend to associate with anime then 
what defines anime is really a type of density of these different anime-esque elements. You know, everything from maybe plot points to, you know, certain movements, certain character designs, certain types of voices and styles of speaking. Those things start to get associated with what we assume is anime. And that is something that, you know, an animation that has a lot of those in it, we might think of as anime. And what that does at least for me is that gives us a way to think about anime that doesn't rely on japan as the defining factor of what is anime and so for me this allows us to open anime up to a more global view of conceptualizing anime and still concentrate on the formal elements that are involved that's very interesting and this brings us to uh one of probably the central focus of your book, which is the relationship between uh, nation state and globalization. So you specifically focus on this uh, aspect of um, nation state and globalization in discussing, uh, and we come to the title of your book, Anime's Identity. So how do you see, uh, first of all, the relationship between anime and national identity? Uh, Yeah, thank you. That's a good question. Um, The, I think, as I said, anime is in the contemporary era in, in particular, really, it, it's often defined in its relation to Japan. And so there's this negotiation of uh, 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 of defining anime, as I said before in the previous discussions with connecting to things like nation branding, of these negotiations between an internal and external definition. And what happens is by internalizing domestically this kind of global conception of anime it gets narrowed as i was saying before formally but the upshot of that from a nation branding perspective is that anime gets nationalized it gets associated with japan internally and externally so there's a there appears to be some kind of consistency here that plays into this notion that you know anime is this uh you know broad representative of uh japan so as I was trying to point out with that dynamic, it's interesting, at least to me, because there's this raising of anime to the national level, which wasn't always the case in its long history. But this is actually not isolated to the national. It's part of globalization. <laughs> so as anime's profile glo- grows globally, there's a corresponding emphasis on the national So another way to say this might be that as anime gets presented as more and more of a kind of local thing, that it's actually part of the process of animes becoming more and more global. So the... In terms of time period, for instance, in the mid-2000s, there's a trend that has continued on to this day of really emphasizing certain specific locales within Japan in anime. Now, before that, um, there were, of course, certain small-scale uh, fans that would, uh, fan events or, or practices where they would go to locations that weren't in anime. But it wasn't, like, customary in, like, almost every single anime that comes out to really focus on, oh, this street corner was in this, you know, scene in this anime, or, oh, this, you know, old... Uh, elementary school was in this anime or something like that, Um, or this crosswalk is really important. Um, These smaller locations uh, are, they become part of 
what people expect of anime. But it's happening at precisely the moment that anime gets increasingly promoted globally through these nation branding campaigns. So oddly, like as anime gets more global, the emphasis on the local and really, really tiny local places, uh, it increases. So I think there's that connection there between the globalization and the nationalization of anime to put it in a really rather, I guess, overly simplified terms. That's a very uh, fascinating point. Actually, one of our other hosts on the on the channel, um, Reddy Generati, he researches about anime pilgrimages in Japan, and um, he's mentioned that many of these uh, tourists, well, sometimes there will be tourists coming to Japan specifically to visit these anime sites because they're, um, well, Jap- both Japanese and famous through the anime so that's a very interesting phenomenon um, yeah oh sorry yeah. go ahead go ahead oh no i was gonna say in the in the book there's a small there's a sequence where i kind of talk about this and i specifically talk about an uh an area in kyoto that was used in the anime tamako market uh and i i happen to have at the time had lived near that area and you can still go and in the back of this shopping arcade that was featured in that anime you there's a whole bunch of notebooks with people who would sign it who 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 had come from all over japan but also all over the world to see this particular uh shopping arcade which was featured in uh in the anime so i think this is definitely part of this uh kind of broader focusing and tension between the uh, kind of local and global in in anime why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them with royal caribbean you don't just go to the beach you visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in north america you don't just go for a road trip you atv and zip line through the jungle you don't just go somewhere new you rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Yes, that's definitely very fascinating. And uh, now I want to return to one of the points that you mentioned earlier, which is that um, now more anime works are being made transnationally in their production, contents, and promotion. Um, so are there any changes or new challenges for anime to maintain their Japanese, their national characteristics. And um, I guess for our listeners who might not be familiar with the um, transnationality of anime production, how does it work? Um, okay, uh, th- thank you for that question. Let me um, uh, kind of look at give a broader overview on this and it, it might come across first as me going on a bit of a tangent but I, I i promise you i'll come back to to all these questions so um uh, first i think that it, it's it's important to recognize the different forms of of transnationality that are at play here and so uh i'll start with the first one which is I would call local global tensions. And these are, or some of them I I described just before in terms of, for instance, the shift in the naming conventions or uh, the way that uh, the kind of promotion of different localized places are spurred on by the increased global presence of of anime. 
But uh, I think the it might not be initially apparent as to why there's this type of local global tension, because I think for most people outside of Japan, but maybe even in Japan as well, they're going to look at anime and be like, oh, there's no tension here. Anime is Japanese. This is Japanese culture. But I think actually that's precisely the moment where the tension maybe is revealed isn't the right word, but <laughs> perhaps is is actually tapered over or maybe even hidden might be a better way to say it, the the opposite in that anime is so globally known that people can recognize it and then not just recognize it presume to know its origin so in that moment we see this tension of anime as oh it's Japanese, but I'm looking at it in Hawaii or Spain or Sri Lanka or wherever you want to talk about. You know, there it's it's got this global presence, but we presume that it's still Japanese. And even if this consumption and in some cases production has gone on for decades, it's still Japanese. And that's the tension there that I think is perhaps the most accepted way of thinking about anime's globality that it's somehow both local but really actually it's just japanese and this is i think one way to conceptualize anime's globalization but i wanted to think of well are there other ways to think about it so that brings me to the second way and this would be what i'm calling a centralized transnationality or centralized transnational network, I think would be more accurate. And here in the case of anime's production, I think this type of transnationality comes to the foreground most clearly. So here, Tokyo takes on a very privileged position. The vast majority of anime studios are in Tokyo. And usually the way the production works is there's a central studio and they are kind of tasked with creating this anime. And because anime is a very difficult business and it costs a lot to make and the margins are razor thin and people are overworked and underpaid, they outsource a lot of the work. And there's a ton of animators, a significant portion of the industry. A few years ago, it was something like 80% of the industry, which are freelancers. And then there's also other studios, some of them larger, some of them smaller, that will take the extra work or other parts of the work in uh, at different times. Now, some of these studios are in Japan, but there's also a massive number of them that are outside of Japan and largely in Asia, in places like Seoul, Shanghai, Manila, Ho Chi Minh City. There are a lot of these particular studios which are 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 contributing to anime's production. So historically, anime grew out of what's called celluloid animation, where you have these in these these thin, clear layers of celluloid that different pieces are painted in different areas and they're composited into a single image and manipulated and then composited into a, sing- a different image. And that's how we get the different uh, frames of anime. And so layering is very important for anime. And even in the digital era where people aren't using celluloid anymore, there's the layers are kind of baked into this production process. This also makes outsourcing pretty easy because a different person can work on a different layer in a different place and that's totally acceptable (laughs) so this is how it works within japan but also outside of japan different parts of the, the production process are done in different places 
But that also means that each anime and each episode could have a different configuration of locations, and those aren't always inside Japan. So, for instance, in the book, I talk about one particular episode, which had parts of it done in Japan, parts done in the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, and uh, China. So you have in one episode, five different places making the different frames that we see or parts of the different frames uh, that we see in the anime. So when I say anime has this a type of multi-layer transnationality, in some cases I mean it quite literally, that there's multiple layers of transnationality in anime. And this has been going on since the 1960s. And I think a lot of the time the discussions are that the people who are making these uh, uh these works outside of Japan are kind of quote unquote simply following Japanese orders. But this I think is a is not quite accurate to the actual production processes. It's not just directors that have the entire agency about what to do for everything in the anime production. But you know, animators have leeway to interpret the storyboards that they're given, which uh, you know they can make certain changes to the image. Of course, the image is like really, really small, and they have to make it quite big anyway. So they're always a process of interpretation. And what I wanted to bring to the foreground is returning the agency to these really overworked and underpaid animators, both inside and outside of Japan, and show their participation in this transnational performance. So these are very skilled laborers. uh, And in fact, some of the studios that um, are animes outsourced to, they work exclusively on anime, despite the fact that places like Seoul is a major hub for outsourced animation from, uh, you know, studios that are located in the U.S. and Europe as well. These studios there, they they really focus on on anime. And uh, the other important part for me is that you know the the the, the very images <laughs> that you're seeing on the screen are. Th- those are the things made by these these animators. So you know they're we're, we're, they're actively participating in this anime production process. So just to kind of bring this back to the notion of transna- transnationality, this is a very specific form of transnationality where there's a centralized network with a very powerful center, and in this case it's Tokyo, and that all the other nodes that the work is sent out to, they're also sending work back that we see in the final images. Now, in order for any of this to work, you have to engage with what I was saying is the anime ask. These are skilled laborers. They have to know and 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 be able to perform the repetitions, the citations of what we expect of anime, the anime ask, this very particular style of producing anime. So because the anime ask is always a you know, copying of other anime to put it very kind of crudely, it's always has to do this because it has to make itself recognizable as this particular category of 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 media. So here, this is a really this is this is a kind of not not really like a direct copy of another work, but a kind of broad repetition or referencing of of other examples. Like I said before, things like character designs or facial expressions, styles of animation, things like that. A certain reperformance of these patterns. And as I was saying before, the anime as depends on these repetitions. And each repetition then is always referencing previous ones, meaning that there's a kind of network here of references 
but it's not centralized in one particular place like Tokyo is. It's it's decentralized. And all these iterations, all these repetitions of references are linking to each of those other references. And since the collab- anime production is generally collaborative and multi-layered and has been happening for decades, then what the general references are are always already these kind of mixed things in the first place. So each iteration, each performance of this anime-esque thing connects to this huge, vast network of connections and prior iterations that occur, occur across borders. And this is much harder to locate or pin down into one locale, like kind of inside or outside of Japan. And this is the third type of transnationality, this decentralized network, which is in many ways open to traveling, but very rigid in the fact that you have to stay within the confines of what is already recognizable of as an anime-esque pattern. So in some ways, the proof of the effectiveness of these animators to participate in anime's production is that the animators outside of Japan who've been producing anime for decades, they're clearly able to to create the anime-esque because they're, nobody's ever commented on this. They just presume that this is, is Japanese. So in a weird way, this anime-esque performance... Uh, both enables but also hides the transnationality of anime's production because the anime-esque is so associated with Japan that if it's a very well-done performance that is something that shouldn't be commented on, then it technically, quote-unquote, passes as Japanese even though it's been produced transnationally. So all three of these forms of transnationality are operating together with anime at once so you have the decentralized transnationality of these anime as conventions which enables the transnational labor and all of this is centralized within tokyo as the privileged center in a standard production process and because tokyo is located within japan it allows an easier sense of associating anime with japan as this product from japan which is exported and gone globalized. So that's then where this local global dynamic pops in as well. So um, I'm sorry, this is, again, quite a bit of a long explanation, but I promise I'll come back to the to the point, uh, the, the, the question here. So um, uh, for me, if, you know, anime is this decentralized, uh, the anime-esque is this decentralized thing, people who live outside of Japan and have been w- watching anime for decades and sometimes even making anime for decades, it makes perfect sense that they're going to start making their own <laughs> works uh, much more or centralized much more locally. So a lot of these anime that are increasing in number that are made largely outside of Japan, they're also transnational, but their lo- they're kind of central node isn't Tokyo, it would be, for instance, someplace like Shanghai, for instance. So this then connects to the local global dynamic because there's this notion of anime and the anime-esque as this Japanese thing. And so for it to be seen as authentic, it tends to have to have some association with Japan. So for instance, if a work is centrally produced in Shanghai, it may get a Japanese language dub to then get an association with Japan in, in, in kind of some way. 
But from a formal perspective, they're doing the same things that uh, so-called anime proper or anime that people think of as coming from Japan do. You know, they're just repeating the anime-esque patterns. So what happens is because of this emphasis on the local global, this kind of local global or, or like authentication of anime in relationship to Japan, these works that are made outside of Japan have this real difficult bind. Any work that is perceived as being quote unquote Japanese, they can do whatever they want to the anime-esque form. And everyone's like, oh, that's anime just by its by definition of being related to Japan. But these works that are open about their transnationality, they get overly scrutinized. So they're either, okay, well, they're let's say they want to innovate on the anime-esque or get or kind of deviate from those patterns, then people are going to say, oh, it's not anime enough. It's, 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 it's clearly not doing what, you know, the standard anime-esque is. But if they adhere to it and do it really well, then people are going to say, oh, no, they're just simply copying Japanese culture. So they're in this real bind here, despite the fact that most anime that people think are Japanese are themselves transnationally produced and themselves also, again, quote-unquote, copying the anime-esque. So how this all gets negotiated in the future, you know, I can't, I can't predict that. But my, I guess, pr- my, my, my guess is that the heavy association with Japan isn't going to go away for a while, um, even if the anime ask tends, you know, changes, which is inevitable. The centralization of Tokyo will definitely continue, and um, this doesn't mean that it's going to. Uh, this is again one of the reasons the centralization is an important point because it doesn't mean that this is exclusively "quote unquote" ethnically Japanese, and that there's a lot of uh, uh, people who are not ethnically Japanese who move to Tokyo, sometimes even founding studios here and participate in the industry at multiple levels, you know, sometimes very high levels in the industry. So um, this is, I think, going to continue for some time. But there may be other centers that pop up. I think Shanghai is probably the the best guess for that moving, moving forward as another kind of center. And that might also be connected to a broader shift in a type of regional understanding of what anime could be Um, uh, thinking about how the various laborers contribute and participate in this and are linked with one another through these decentralized iterations of the anime esque. And uh, I, I I also want to want to point out here that this type of regionalization is not the standard regionalization that we might think of where it's internally homogenous. I, I wouldn't go that far. I, I focused mainly on, on uh, Asian labor in, in my research, but this shouldn't be considered a type of evenly dispersed network. So most of these animators are operating in major cities. Um, and so you have connections between, let's say, like Seoul and Shanghai and Manila, but there are places you know outside of those areas that aren't necessarily involved in these production networks or places in in asia like sri lanka for instance that have no animators uh, or involved or not involved in production even though there are fans there and increasingly there are animators from europe and the u.s which are participating in anime production so um all of these are going largely unnoticed and so i think it uh, you know, speaks to the fact that the performers in these different locales have the capacity to successfully enact the anime-esque, and they've been doing so for, for decades. 
Wow, that's very well a bit Long. complicated, <laughs> but yeah. also very uh, clearly put. Now I'm curious.、Um, well, you mentioned that this、um, outsourcing of the production, animus production, started in the 1960s, and with technology moving forward and with、uh, migration. Uh, especially, I guess、um, a lot of um, um, other from other Asian countries. There are a lot of producers moving into Japan, or Japanese producers moving out of Japan. Does the do you think that anime esque has shown any transformation until now,、um, based on Japan's the the change in perhaps Japan's position in the globe or Japan's attitude? To this、uh, more openness of anime. Well, I think it's. I mean, it's it's a complicated question. I'm 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 not sure that within the industry people are quite so. I guess the right word might be nationalistic. I'm not sure if I would go so far, but that that um that that there's not so so much emphasis on that.、Um, although I think, you know. Things may change over time,、uh, as I said. As things get more popular globally, it seems that sometimes there's the kind of reverse corresponding、uh, approach to focus on the local and specifically the national.、Um, in terms of the formal shifts, I I I think that you know anime and the anime esque itself is always quite quite hybrid、uh, from the get go, and、um, you know you have I I, I In the book, I didn't have time to really out lay out a type of history of the transnationality of the anime esque, but there's a lot of influence, for instance, on from the from the show like、uh, Thunderbirds, which was a UK puppet show,、um, on the robot anime genre, and、uh, so there's、uh, things like that that I think are open for discovery, and、um, you know, a lot of Of references and connections to things like, you know, like Hong Kong kung fu films, for instance, that、uh, are are important to they kind of get folded into the anime esque, and that's what keeps it changing and engaging, and and why it keeps feeling, I think, so fresh is precisely because it's always bringing in different things, and what becomes successful gets repeated, <laughs> and then that shifts what we associate. As the anime esque, so recently things like Chainsaw Man is chock full of、uh, you know filmic references,、uh, and that's coming from all over the world. And so I I, I think you know how how the anime esque will will change what it's going to look like is is something that I I I I personally can't can't predict. But I think that in response to that particular question, I would say it's it's, it's always. It's always been hybrid,、um, and I think it will continue. Well, it it always will continue to be hybrid. One last question:、um, Bring this、um, transnationality back to national identity.、Um, how do you think anime functions within the Japanese society as a form of media in, I guess, shaping or creating or changing? The、um, Japanese understanding of their na- national identity. Well, I think yeah, this connects back to what is you know the shifts about what anime 
what anime represents. Uh, and in recent years, it's seen as, you know, teaching as I do classes on, on anime and, and, and manga as me teaching classes on Japanese culture. And I think that it, it doesn't always have to, to, to be that in, in, in particular, this type of social role of what anime is, what does it represent and how does it represent and, and why specifically needs to be addressed and engaged with. And I, I think this is all the more important because it's something that's now undeniably global in, in, in presence. It's becoming more and more, I think, mainstream. And um, I, I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. So I think this really is not just a question that's isolated to Japan. Uh, this is a question of of the globality of culture in general. How do we approach culture in general? Uh, there's, as I said before, multiple layers of transnationality in anime and the notion of where anime comes from and what it's supposed to represent becomes all the more complicated when we pay attention to that. So I think this presents us then with a bunch of different possibilities for conceptualizing culture in general, um, who makes it, where it comes from, how we relate to it, how we analyze it. All of that gets wrapped into the way that we expect it to perhaps or what we expect it to represent and what we can glean from it. So as I was saying before, for me, it's, it's, it's hybridity all the way up, all the way down. And I think this is a very radical departure from contemporary notions of cultural production or how we relate to culture, which is still very much nation focused. It's very possessive. It's very ownership based. And instead I wanted to highlight this kind of distinct spatial organization that we're seeing that really jumps across borders and this classically modern notion of inside and outside become really thoroughly blurred in in specific ways and so for me this is a really this is very i guess uh, fascinating or 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 there's something that is is very provocative and 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 worthwhile exploring in this because it's i think it's 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 radically open and inclusive if we look at the idea of the anime-esque, as long as the anime-esque patterns are adhered to, anyone, anywhere, theoretically, could participate in the cultural production. And as I said, this is a bit of a double-edged sword because the patterns must be rigidly adhered to. And they are also in some ways kind of exclusive. It's not only for the people who have to train to be able to produce these, but also those who may not understand them. So you can kind of exclude people in that particular way. But this is a bit of an idealistic notion, (laughs) truthfully. And in practice, as I was saying, Japan and authenticity looms quite large, as well as the shadow of imperialism. So as we've talked about here, this transnationality of anime, um, it's largely the focus uh, historically, but also in my research has been in Asia. And many of the places that anime is is and was produced and historically suffered quite brutally under Japanese colonialism. So this emphasis on repetition and copying in the anime-esque, when it's seen as representative of Japanese culture, can be seen as a copying over and a replaying of the historical violence of erasure, like what happened in, for instance, Korea during Japanese colonization. So this is also, I think, part of that transnational dynamic. And... 
I think it's important to bring in the different perspectives from different places that are employed and brought in here. Even, as I said, it could be in the same production, maybe even in the uh, uh, the same episode. So there's we need tools to think about this, the transnational labor and the connections, the different viewpoints that are both violent and constructive, the asymmetries and the interconnections. We have to conceptualize this. So for me, this means that we have to refocus on form because if we bring back our attention to media form then the animation becomes paramount it's the area that we have to focus on it's about exploring who and how and where that occurs and this once more becomes transnational so we i think this is about reconceptualizing how we think about cultural production more broadly and just shifting our focus to say, oh, well, this animation is transnational. It's not enough. It's There needs to be a methodological shift and a, a conceptual shift that brings this all into focus more consistently. So to kind of make this, quote unquote, invisible labor visible again and reveal the transnational participation that can kind of sketch a different possibility for reading anime to not just focus on the exclusivity to Japan, but kind of embrace this hybridity. And if that's the case, then maybe anime's identity could be seen differently. And then we can shift our understanding of transnationality and globality and the corresponding social functions of that, about how we read it, what it represents, what it could be, and not just for anime, but for other media in general. So it could be a shift to something that's much more open to intersections and uh, provide us a very different configuration of space and understanding of how culture operates there, how we relate to it, how we relate to the nation, how we relate to culture in general. And then from there, we could start to explore through the media form and other formal approaches uh, ways to engage with this and to include but also move beyond Japan. That's very well said. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your time and uh, for this very interesting book. Well, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity and you taking the time to, to, to work with me on this. For our listeners who are interested in more details of uh, Dr. Swan's analysis of anime and his discussion of the theoretical approaches to popular media, make sure to check out his new book, Anime's Identity, Performativity and Form Beyond Japan. Uh, the book is currently available in paperback. This is Jin Lee from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode and happy holidays.